You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Are you still running these days? Every day. It's 90 degrees here today, and it was 100 in the weekend, and I run every day. What got you into that? When I was uh, 7 to 11 years old, I was a speed skater in uh, Winnetka, Glencoe, Illinois, which is where I was raised. It's a little town right on Lake Michigan, and um, about 20 miles north of Chicago. And I used to go around, you skate in your age group, you know. And I skated the silver skates in, let's see, 1942, 3, 4, and 5. And then in, when I turned 11, um, I got a little bored with ice skating because I, I didn't have a real coach. I just did it myself, and I was good at it. I was in the top three in North America in my age group. Um, but I started running. They, I had to go to a camp, and at the camp we had to take portages with goddamn canoes every place we went. And we went on, you know, 20-day trips and so forth and so on. And uh, one time they got to a portage, and they didn't know how far it was the other side, so they sent me ahead to run across and then turn around and run back and time me figuring that's, that's how long the portage would be. And so I did that, and that was the first time that I started running and uh, never ran long distance after that until in the early 60s. But uh, on my whole track career, I ran 800 meters, which is two laps on the track. So you were doing that kind of while you were getting into acting, was it kind of a choice for you between doing the running and the acting? Were you ever thinking about doing that professionally? I never acted an ounce until I quit college. A running was in, although I went to New Trier High School, which has had a, a bunch of people come to Hollywood from New Trier, and there's no special drama program or anything. There might be one now, but there wasn't when I was there. But the people that went to New Trier and came into our business, for example, Ralph Bellamy, Hugh O'Brien, Charlton Heston, Rock Hudson, Anne Margaret, uh, myself, a uh, little girl from Big, Elizabeth Perkins. Um, my freshman year, I'm, I'm my freshman year at New Trier, Donald Rumsfeld was president of my senior class. Um, and then uh, we had, uh, you know, uh, Christine Ebersol, uh a bunch of people went there and with no real drama program. Uh, so, and the town's only 12,000 people. Uh, I didn't go into that at all. I just ran all through high school, ran uh, the first two years of college, and when I failed to make the Olympic team in 1956, I quit college and became an actor. And for about a year and a half, I didn't really run much in late 56, early 57, into maybe mid-58. And once I went to work for Mr. Kazan and Mr. Strasburg, which were my first two people I worked for, 
um, I started running again, and I've run ever since then, but I didn't have the leg speed I used to have, so I moved up to running longer distances. And uh, the one, how, how did I get hooked on long distances? I'm boring the shit out of him, tell me to move on. If I, I started running in the early 60s marathons, and one day on Labor Day weekend, in 1967, a friend I had named Bob Carmen, who had been an alternate on the 1960 Olympic team at Rome for America in the marathon, he was like, you know, I'd run with him. He was my running mate. And um, he called me up on a Labor Day weekend, and he said, what are you doing this weekend? I said, nothing. He said, why don't you come up here tomorrow? I don't know if you know or Santa Barbara area or anything where I am, but Santa Barbara is about 75 miles north of L.A., and there's a college there, and uh, uh, it's a nice community. It's a beach community, and he lived just above it. So I drove up there, and uh, we started running. Oh, no, so I, I drove up there, but before I drove up, he says, why don't you come up here and let's run tomorrow? I said, okay. He said, how would you like to do something nobody's ever done? And I said, what might that be, sir? He said, let's run all day, every day. Eight months later, Bob Carmen and I and another guy ran from Santa Monica Pier to the Denver airport in 34 days. Holy cow. That's 1,200 miles. Wow. And uh, we did 33 and a half miles a day. And, uh, you know, we had motorhomes follow us and everything like that. But we couldn't get in them until we got in them, you know, every two and a half hours or so to get a massage to sleep. We slept in them at night and everything. He had one. I had one. The other guy had one. About Durango, Colorado, the other guy dropped out. He had a wife and kids with him. And he dropped out and uh, just couldn't go on. And he wrote a book about it about how I lost my love and my life in the breakdown lane. And he he just couldn't hack it. But then I, you know, I started working more and I didn't have the time. You know, when you're first an actor, you got time to do everything. And I figured, well, I'll invest in myself, so I'll just run. I don't need a partner. I don't need a mate. I just go on. I, I don't like to run out and back. So I'd ask people to come pick me up different places wherever I was. So that's what I did, and uh, I still do it. I've only done one running movie called On the Edge. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's a very good running movie. It's directed by a guy named Rob Nilsson, and uh, Rob Nilsson won the Palm d'Or at Cannes in the early 70s for a movie called Northern Lights, and it was about a bunch of farmers who organized in 1916 in North Dakota and uh, to get paid for, you know, the thrashing crews, you know what they are, they come through in the fall and they thrash all the wheat down and bunch it for it and everything. And they wanted to unionize in 1916, so that's what they did. And he won the Palm d'Or for that. So he directed this movie. It starred me and a bunch of runners. My uh, coach was played by John Marley. Pam Greer was my co-star who was teaching a, uh, a um, 
you know, like a yoga class. And uh, it was all about the Dipsy Race, which is an annual race they run now. John Muir started in 1879. And you run from, have you ever been to Mill Valley? I know of Mill Valley just because of the number of movies that have been set there. There's a big 4,500-foot uh, mountain there called Mount Tamalpais, and uh, Mill Valley's at sea level. And uh, every year they run a race 7.2 miles from the Mill Valley Courthouse, uh, 7 miles to Stinson Beach. And the first person that touches the water wins the race, and it's a handicap race. And uh, the handicaps are determined by... Uh, um, sex and age, uh, not by times. And so all the hot shots that are in their 20s, they all start at the same time. But uh, my character came back. Uh, he vanished for 25 years, and he came back. Uh, no one knew where he was for all those years, and he came back um, just to win the Dipsy because he'd been a famous runner, and it's based on a true story um, about a guy named Wes Santee who went to Kansas, who was the first American to flirt with running under four minutes in a mile in the mid-50s. He was in college when I was. They banned him for life because he took two plane tickets. He lived in Kansas. His wife was having a baby. They gave him tickets to run in the Melrose meet at Madison Square Garden on Friday night and the Boston Globe meet on Saturday night. These are indoor track meets. And he did both. But he cashed in the second round trip ticket because, for, so his wife could, you know, have the baby. And he had no money, and they banned him for life. So he never got. And what happened to me is this guy takes off and uh, has a similar thing. He's banned from being, and he was going to be captain of the 1960 uh, uh, Olympic team. And uh, they banned him for life, so he could never run. So now he enters this little gypsy race, and the story is about... They try and pull him out of it, because it's the first time Wide Wide World of Sports ever broadcast it with Keith Jackson and Jim McKay and some runners, Marty LaCour and all. So they followed the whole race, and they put it on television. And that was the year he was supposed to run, and I did run. And they tried to pull me out of the race. And what happens is during the course of the race, um, I start moving up. I came back because I got a seven-minute handicap because I was 46 years old at the time. And uh, as it goes on, they keep trying to pull me out. And the guys that I'm running with who are up front, we form kind of a bond and they help knock people out of the way when they try and stop me from running because I'm competing with them. It's about the commonality of man. Nobody does it all by yourself. And at the end of the race, as I come into the little town of Stinson Beach, after having going up 4,000 and coming down 4,000 feet in this race, uh, we get into the parking lot and we turn, and there's about 200 yards on the macadam, and then you turn to the sand, and it's about 40 yards to the ocean, to the edge of the water. And as I'm just turning to hit the sand, I slow down a little bit because all these other guys, I'm going to win it, and they've helped me win it. I mean, by getting, you know, knocking people out of the way, they didn't go slow or anything, but they did that. And I slow down, and all seven of us uh, hold hands and cross the finish line together because nobody, nobody does it by themselves. 
whether it's a road race or life or anything else. And that, that was the running over. If you can run it, you should run it. It's a pretty very It was selected one of the top sports films of the 20th century. Is it true that one of your first roles was being in North by Northwest? No, I wasn't in North by Northwest. Uh, my first movie role was in October 1959. Um, I left Philadelphia after two weeks. I went to a little dramatic school there called the Bessie B. Hicks School. And uh, it was right next door in Philadelphia to the Betsy Ross house, which is where Betsy Ross made the American flag. And uh, I quit Penn, which was in the city, and I went and looked for an acting school. And after two weeks, I realized you had to do three things. You had to, and this was uh, May of 57. Uh, and the two thing, the three things you had to do was go to New York, try and become a member of the actor's studio, and work for Mr. Kazan. And I did all three things I went. And about three months after I was in New York, I did an audition for the actor's studio that Mr. Strasberg and Mr. Kazan both saw, just a five-minute little scene from Waiting for Godot. And uh, after the audition, they put me in the studio right there, and the next uh, uh, Gadge, we call Gadge's name, you know, that's Kazan's nickname. Um, he said, uh, be in my office 9 o'clock Monday morning. I was in his office 9 o'clock Monday morning. He put me under contract for five years. And he had four other people. He had Pat Engel. He had Rip Torn. He had Geraldine Page. He had Brucey from Winnetka. And he had Lee Remick. And we were the five. I was the youngest of the group. but uh, And that was how I began my career. And then they did a real interesting thing to me, which I had had no acting experience at all. So for them, I was, for them, I was like a little Frankenstein because I had no bad habits. I had no habits at all. I had no training, anything. So they started me the first 15 months at the actor's studio. I could only do scenes in which I never spoke. The idea of that was to train me to love, hate, laugh, cry, all the different things personally from myself and looking at the other person and dealing with the material I was in without a responsibility of dialogue. So the first thing I learned as an actor was behavior, and that made my career. Uh, I don't know what I'd done if I had to do dialogue scenes first, you know, I, I, um, I, I would have floundered. And the best example of that in my career, I would say, is Nebraska. What you look for is an entire film or an entire performance or a play of nothing but moment-to-moment behavior. And after I went to a party... Um, when Nebraska was out and uh, at the party um, was Al Pacino I'd never met Al Pacino this just two years ago or not quite two years ago and um, he was there he said you know I never met him he says you've got a movie out now I haven't seen it and I said didn't you get it he said I didn't get a screener or anything and my academy member I said well uh and I went to the head of Paramount, who was right there with me, Adam Goodman. And he said, tell Al he'll have a screener on his doorstep tomorrow morning. But late that afternoon, he got my number. 
He called me on the telephone, and he was amazing. He said, you know what? How did you do that? I said, meaning, he said, I never saw the work with Bruce. I never saw you act. I said, a couple of years ago, I made up my mind that I didn't want to just act anymore. I wanted to be a real person. I just wanted to be real people from now on. I didn't want to perform anymore. So I decided to go back to what I learned at the very beginning and just try and be the person and don't, uh, don't act, so to speak. And the best way I can describe what that means is the first day on the set, Alexander Payne came up to me and he said, do you see anything here? We're in some shit back down in Nebraska. And he says, do you see anything here early this morning that you've not seen in a movie you've been on before? And I said, yeah, I do. Everybody seems to be pulling their oar. And he said, well, hopefully that's because we have 88 crew members here and 59 of them have worked every day on every movie I've ever made. So you, sir, can dare to fail and risk because we got your back. And then he walks me over to Faden Papa Michael, who's the cameraman. And he said, uh, Faden and I wonder if you would do something for us we're not sure you've ever done in your career. Really? What would that be? He says, um, don't ever show us anything. Let us find it. And that's the key to Nebraska. Because I never had to perform. I never had to you know, be aware of where the camera was or what it was doing or anything else. I just was the character. The first example of it is that when he picks me up in the police station and takes me home to the house, first time you see her and we go into the house, as we're walking through the kitchen, I go get a drink of water and uh, Will has just said, what would you do if you had a million dollars anyway, Dad? I said, I'd buy a new truck and a generator. And now we're in the house, and I go over to the fountain. And she said, uh, what the hell do you need another generator for? Uh, Will says, what do you need a generator for? And I said, I need it to paint. And he says, he, he thinks he needs it because Ed Pegram stole the one he had. And I say, Ed Pegram's not a thief. And she said, and Will says, oh, well, when was this? I say, 74. He said, Jesus Christ, Dad, it's 2012. I'd call that stealing. And I go into the other room, and I sit down on the couch in the living room by myself. And they continue talking in the kitchen. And I'm sitting in the living room, and they're talking. The camera is on me. You never see them have that conversation in the kitchen. They follow me into the living room. It's on me. And I don't hear what they're saying, but the audience does. And what they're saying, I didn't know the sumbitch she's saying. I didn't know sumbitch wanted a million dollars. If he had wanted a million dollars, he should have worked for it. And if I had a million dollars, I know what I'd do with it. I'd put him in a goddamn home. And that was, and he doesn't hear that. I mean, I was just, but that's what he meant about let us find it. We'll find the behavior, whether you're on the page that you're in the shot or not. And very similar to what I just went through on the Safe Elite with Quinn Tarantino. Very similar styles. 
one as meticulous, uh, Clinton's greatest gift is he is absolutely the best I have ever seen with his eye for detail. I mean, he doesn't miss a thing. If he, if he missed anything or if he isn't the best at that, the only guy is as good as him and not better would have been Lucino Visconti. Otherwise, he's it. And uh, he and Alexander have different styles. Uh, to be lucky enough to go from Alexander Payne to Quentin Tarantino back-to-back is pretty goddamn lucky, you know. And the difference is I, I told Quentin the last day I left the set when we were done with the movie, which took 178 days, incidentally. Um, the last day that I left, I went up to him and I said, you know something, bud, I want to thank you for giving me the chance to get better. And, uh, that's really what happened. Alexander gave me the break of a lifetime and Quentin gave me a chance to get, but what he did was he made an opera. And the reason it took so long to shoot is we shot it in CinemaScope. And nobody's made a CinemaScope movie since 1963. The last one was It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. That's 70 millimeter instead of 35. And while you're shooting, unless you put the camera on tracks, you cannot move the CinemaScope camera. You can't pan it. So there's eight of us in this house for a long, long time. So we had to do every scene eight times, close-up coverage. You know, each each person had to have his close-up and his reaction to things for every scene throughout the movie. And uh, that's why that's why it took so long. And uh, we had weather problems. We were in Telluride, Colorado for January, February, and March, and then we moved back here. And it was like 21 degrees in the little shack that we were in in this movie, which is a stagecoach way station in 1878, where you change horses to go on the stagecoaches, you know, from one to the other. Uh, there's eight people that come in there, and they're there the whole time. And the story is about who they are. And it's basically, you know, a premise that Quinn had. He said, what if I take the eight most unique nasty pricks that have ever been on film that are still alive and put them all in a room together with guns. And uh, what happens is when the eight people get there, two different stagecoaches, four in each one, nobody is anywhere close to who they say they are except my character. So that's what the movie is. This one, I haven't seen it, but... Uh, you know, it opens Christmas Day, and it opens only in 100 theaters because there's only 100 CinemaScope theaters in America. And then on January 8th, it opens in 4,000 theaters in a another version, but not CinemaScope. So, but the CinemaScope theaters will keep playing it, you know what I'm saying, as long as people come. And then the other people can see it two weeks later kind of a throwback for you being a cowboy again because i think one of the first times i ever saw you on film was uh hang him high uh, well 1967 yeah that was such a good role yeah it was uh, that was his first american movie i'd worked with i'd worked with glenn a couple times in rawhide 
and uh, he remembered me, I guess, and asked me to be in that. And uh, he went had gone to Italy after Ride went down and done those two westerns, and then came back, and that was the first movie he did in America. Uh, you know, uh, where he had a big starring lead. You know. And uh, I enjoyed that, but I did a lot of westerns. I, uh, you know, I don't know how many I've did. I miss the western. You know, Mike, I, I miss the westerns. I, I miss them as an audience, and I miss them making them because there, there are lessons in westerns. I don't mean lessons about here, you do this, you do that. How people coped with stuff we can't imagine that they had to cope with. The crossing the prairie. You know, I've always been interested in the migration from St. Louis to, you know, to the Pacific Ocean. And nobody even ever made a great movie about Lewis and Clark. They made a few, but, uh, and that was 1803. Jesus Christ. But I, I miss it, you know. In 1970, I did a movie in April and May for Jack Nicholson called Drive, he said that he directed one time in a scene. In this movie, one day, I, I play a basketball coach. I'm walking down the hall at our out-of-town hotel where my basketball team is staying, getting ready for the national championships. This is I'm walking down the hall. Three really kind of cute 19-year-old cheer, 17-year, no, 19-year-old cheerleaders go down in their sweaters and skirts, go past me. And there's nothing written for me to do. And as they go past me, I'm walking with my assistant coach. And I just snap my fingers, you know, bing, bing, bing. And didn't say anything, just did that. Uh, you know, rather than them hearing me out loud, I just let my friend know there's three hot girls. And Jack, when it was done, he got the camera. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, that's a Dernsey. And that's the first time he's ever done one that I know unless he's been doing them in television and stuff. But even in Wild Angels and The Trip and uh, Rubber Rousers when we worked together every day, I was, I was doing stuff like that. And that came from the freedom that Kazan gave me to be myself, you know, to not be afraid. And my biggest problem, Mike, was that all during those years of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and 90s, that I was getting the opportunity to play a role which would enable me to play other roles of similar stature. And so I just kind of, in 2004, in 2004, Alexander Payne gave me the script for Nebraska, and it took us 10 years to make it. He wanted me, and he wouldn't make a movie without me. And they talked about Gene Hackman, they talked about everybody else, and he said, no, I won't make it if Bruce Dern's not the guy, and I won't make it if it's not in black and white. And we won my battle, but black and white, we didn't win until 60 days before we started shooting. One of the people in charge of the money at Paramount said, Brad Gray and, uh, and uh, Adam Goodman, and Megan Culligan, they were tremendous supporters of the movie, and that was the chairman of the board, the president, and the head of, um, you know, publicity and distribution of it, Megan Culligan. They supported it, but one of the other executives said, why are you making a movie in black and white about people 
in a flyover state. No one gives a shit about who lives out there. No one will see it. You know, well, they were wrong. You know, I have a company called Publicly Private. My partner is uh, Wendy Guerrero. I've always felt that acting is having the ability to be publicly private, meaning that when you're in a play or you're on the stage or you're in a movie, you've got to start from your own heart and then everything will be true. If you, and you've already found the things in the character which are you, rather than, you know, well, the story is this, the story is that. Yes, the story is important, the story is there. But in order to get it absolutely as personal as you possibly can, you've got to start and be able to, in front of the audience, expose your heart. And that's being publicly private. And very few actors go there or try that. I think some of the things that Will Forte did in our movie, never having worked in that style of acting in his life or anything, just always being, you know, running down the street with a fucking, what was a carrot sticking out of his ass or whatever he did in the uh, MacGruber movie. Um, all the different things that he would do Saturday Night Live and all that. And he had some really wonderfully pure moments in that movie. And that, again, was Alexander. And um, I always felt when I first read the script in Nebraska that the best line I'd ever heard an actor deliver, and I'll go to movies sometimes just because of a line, I'll say it again and again and again. I'll see Raintree County again just to hear Lee Marvin as he's dying, say, I'm the fastest man in Raintree County. Yeah, well, he just lays there and dies. And the, the best death scene I ever saw in a movie in my life is Bob Duvall and Geronimo. I mean, that's the best death scene. And he just said, well, I think I'll just sit here, catch a little nap maybe, and uh, he just goes out. No acting, nothing. I mean, sure, of course it's acting. Of course Nebraska's acting, but it's... It's, uh, you're not aware of what's going on. And in these projects I'm trying to develop now, I'm trying to get, I'm interested in making movies about women, girls, older women, any kind of women, who aren't the women you make movies about. I'm interested in the stories about the girls that finish second and third. I'm interested in the runner-ups and little state contests as the float goes by with Miss Apple Valley on it and the girl who was second is on the street looking up at that girl go by her on the float. What's going through the girl's mind who's on the street and how does her life turn out? Because there's only one winner in whatever it is. That's what I'm interested in. And, and uh, we did a film festival this year. My partner, Wendy Guerrero, was president of a film festival called the Benville Film Festival. And Gina Davis thought it up, and it's her idea, and it's for women of diversity. And we had the first one this year in, uh, in May. We did it in Benville, Arkansas, because our partner is Walmart, and Walmart is located in Benville, Arkansas. So... Uh, we had it, and it was good. We had a, we gave out an award called the Guernsey, which went to the most unique, out there, 
honest screenplay that we read that was submitted. Not that was on the screen, but just that was submitted. And uh, I don't know that I'm giving back on Jesus Christ. I haven't done. There's only two guys that I saw in my career that have really genuinely uh, pulled back. Uh, I mean, given back. One is Redford when he dreamed about Sundance and pulled it off. And the other was Clint when he dreamed that Carmel could be neater than it already was and invested, you know, in that. And they're the two guys that I've seen really give back that I, I remember and my, the guys I came through the business with, you know. I think Burt Reynolds has done it in a certain way down where he lives and things like that. But I just think that what we need in films is movies that take risks. The two movies that I'm, uh, and that are unique and interesting and honest and real. Uh, I have two movies that the company is uh, preparing now to make. One is called Coast, which is about three girls in Santa Maria, California, that realize at 16 years old, they gotta get out or they're never gonna get out. They gotta get out when they, by the time they're done with high school, they gotta go. Because if they stay after high school, there's a scene when they're walking down the street, the first scene in the movie, and there's a little 14-year-old girl walking toward them, and they're walking the other way, so she's going to pass them. They don't know her. Um, about 25,000 people in Santa Maria, but she's walking down. She's pushing a baby carriage. She's 14, and a small little girl. And as the girls go by and pass her, one girl says to the other, she's done. And the other one says, no shit because she's 14 and she's already got a kid and she is never going to get out. And that's the kind of story that I want to tell. And it's about these three girls trying to do that. The other story I have is called Yesterday's Weirdness. And it's a story of skateboarders in the 90s. And it begins with, it's not about tricks and stuff, although there's a lot of skateboarding trick stuff in it. But it's a movie about an era of kids that still goes on. And the movie begins the day Kurt Cobain died. And these are two kids on the campus at the University of Iowa. And the story follows them together. Um, they go to California. Everything takes place over maybe four months. And this is a guy who is uh, used to be on a skateboard team, is not, but... His name was Squirrel, and he was considered the best aerial artist in the air on a skateboard that ever lived. He did stuff nobody else could do. But he also shot up heroin five days a week, every day of his life, since he was 17. And he was a walking... And the movie is about a girl who is his girlfriend who lives through this with it and realizes that she shouldn't go along with it anymore because... She's not going to die. She's not going to... It's like Catherine Ross's line in book, Cassidy. I'll do anything for you guys, no matter what it is, but I will not watch you die. And that's what she's basically saying. I am not going to let you go through this anymore. I'm not going to pull needles out. Because for the first month, she does it all, just like they do. And these girls, you know, it's like, when do you stop being a groupie? When do you say, I've seen enough, it's not fun anymore, we're not going to be here. And the title 
is not, uh, I mean, Yesterday's Weirdness is the title, but there is a point where this character squirrels in a bar with one of his cronies, and uh, he says, uh, somebody is saying, say, well, this is a bar, uh, this bar is for weird people. And uh, the other guy says, well, squirrel, squirrel says, we're all weird men. And he said, yeah. This other guy says, yeah. And yesterday's weirdness is tomorrow's reason why. Hunter Thompson. And we give him credit in the movie on the thing. We call him. And uh, I'm going a little Tomskin-esque on Tomskin-esque on Up to yesterday's uh, weirdness is tomorrow's reason why. And that's what the movie's about. If you're going to do this, those kids in that age group, and then they were 22, 23 years old, so now they're 42, 43, 44 years old. Those are the kind of movies I want to make. And, uh, you know, I I don't know if there's going to be an audience for them, but I think audiences... You know, uh, we made a documentary... I guess about nine years ago, eight years ago, called a decade under the influence. At the very end of that, I'm I'm the I'm the last actor on, and then Scorsese comes after me. But at the very end of that, um, they asked me. Uh, Ted Demi asked me. He says, "Well, what are you going to do when you retire?" I said, "Retire? What are you talking about? I can't do anything else but this." And if you think I'm going to retire so Jimmy fucking Khan can get a part from me, you're nuts. And then Marty comes out and he says, you know, I'm absolutely blown away by the wizardry and the technology of the way these guys make movies today and girls. The illumination, the risk-taking, everything else, and their propensity to make money fast. He says, I wouldn't know how to make a movie like Stephen and George and Peter Jackson. I I wouldn't know how to do that. And yet I can say that with all the great stuff in these movies that I'm just talking about, at the end of the day, I miss the people. That's the last line in the documentary. And that's Marty's line. And that's why I'm making movies. I miss the people. And that's what was great in Westerns. They were people trying to do something just to make a life. That's what I'm up to. And uh, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but uh, it'll have something in it where I play, hopefully, you know, somebody who got a little game and maybe got somebody. You know, my agent was on a plane once with Marty Scorsese. Fred Spector used to be my agent. And he was on a plane with Marty, and he said, how come you never found a part for Bruce Dern? And uh, this was maybe 10 years ago. And he said, you know, Bruce was supposed to be in Mean Streets. And Fred said, yeah, that was just before I started to handle him. I had told him to do it. And he said, I offered him the part of Sally Gaga. And he passed. And I said, why? And I said, because I'm not a guido. I don't understand that culture. I'm not New Yorkese. I'm not Brooklyn, the Bronx, the Lower Village, wherever it is. I'm just not that into that, and I would hurt your movie. And he said, so the problem, he says, Bruce wasn't wrong, but he'd have found a way to do it and been great. But 
he said, the problem with Bruce Dern, if you're going to have Bruce Dern in your movie, he has to be the linchpin to the movie. And I, I thought that was a nice compliment, you know. The other, I'm, another movie I'm very proud of, no one ever went and saw, um, for a couple of reasons, but one was called After Dark, My Sweet. Did you ever see that? Did you ever see that? Yeah, we covered that one on the podcast as well. That was another favorite of mine. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, we uh, talked with uh, James Foley and about Jason that one. Patrick was amazing in that movie. Amazing. So was Rachel Ward. So was the whole movie. That's James Foley. And you know, you know that guy directed three movies in a row and never really directed again. And in a row, he was like when Sinclair Lewis wrote those seven novels in five years. You know, fully directed, at close range, after Dark My Sweet, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Now, where is his career? Those are three fucking pretty good movies. And that's what was exciting about Marvin Gardens and Drive, he said. Those guys, BBS, you know, they made six movies. If you count head, they made seven movies. But they made, you know, and the way it worked was... Abe Schneider was president chairman of the board of Columbia Pictures in 1966. Bert Schneider, Bob Rafelson, and Steve Blauner, who were the BBS guys, if you know what BBS was, that was the name of the company. Uh, they went to the dad and they said, we'd like to put something over on America on television. And the dad said, go to Jackie Cooper. He runs television, Screen Gems Television. I don't have any. I just do the movie site. So they went and they convinced Jackie Cooper to put four, only one real musician, over on America as a rock group. And they made the monkeys. Then after they made the monkeys, they wanted to make a movie about the monkeys with the monkeys. So they made Head. And uh, then... Uh, that did well, and then the kind of uh, epic journey of Easy Rider came into play. And uh, they did not have it at first. Originally, Dennis and Peter went to Roger Corman to direct the movie. And I would have played the part that Jack played. And uh, they didn't get along with Roger, Peter, and, uh, and Dennis because they wanted more control than Roger was going to give them. Not artistic control, just getting the work done every day. You know, this isn't a movie that can go four months. You got to do it in 20 days. Roger was out, and I went with him. And I didn't even notice till later on. And then they went to Abe Schneider and said, We want to make a movie, and we can make it for about 800 grand. Will you give it to us? And Abe Schneider said, Yes, this time only. And so they went and made it, it did as well as it did. And they went back and they said, we want a six-picture deal. And Abe Schneider said, I'll give you a million dollars a picture. And if it comes over, whatever it's over, you pay out of your own pockets. Columbia doesn't give you another dime. We'll put a check in the bank for a million the first day you start, and that's it. And then uh, we have the rights to distribute the movie and we'll give you three to one in prints and advertising, meaning we'll spend three million, uh, and this was 1969, we'll, we'll spend three million on the movie to make it. So they did it, and those movies were Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, 
Henry Jaglum made a movie called A Safe Place with Orson Welles, uh, Tuesday Well, a kid named Phil Proctor. Jack played a little part in it. The Last Picture Show, Drive, he said, and The King of Marvin Gardens. And then they made a documentary which won them the Academy Award. It was Peter Davis's documentary called Hearts and Minds. And that, that was BBS. Steve Bonner, he was Bobby Darren's uh, manager also. And when Bobby Darren took his life, Steve just lost all appreciation and love and passion for the business. And so he just kind of retired. Rafelson started to do some other movies. He did a remake of Postman Always Rings Twice. And then he made a movie that I, I kind of really liked, which was... Uh, you know, the movie about the two guys, Sir Richard Burton, and then they tried to discover the Nile, the headwaters of the Nile. Um, I forget the name of it. It was very, very good. And they shot it in Egypt and all that. You know, it's like Michael Ritchie. You know, the last movie Michael made was The Fantastics. The Fantastics isn't a movie. You can't make it a movie. It's a live experience for an audience to enjoy with the in-tongue joy, you know, the tongue-in-cheek jokes and everything like that. It's just like, I have never done but one remake. And I don't think I'd ever do a remake again. And we did a fairly good job. And that was with The Great Gatsby. And the reason is, F. Scott Fitzgerald never meant The Great Gatsby to be a visual experience for an audience. It's all in your heart and your mind when you read it, and it's yours. It's like putting Christ on the screen. You can't do it and identify him perfectly, you know what I'm saying? When we did Gatsby, Francis was preparing Godfather II, and so he adapted the script. Francis wrote the script for our Gatsby. And if you are going to attempt it, you have to lift it a little bit off the page to make it palpable, but you can't change it. But you shouldn't even do it because there have been five Gatsby's and the reason that none of them have really worked, how do you put on the screen that last paragraph? You can't do it. And the first one was, people don't know, was with Wallace Beery and Betty Field in the late 30s. The second one was with Alan Ladd and Betty Field. And that was directed, and the script was written, by Mia Farrow's father, Charles Farrow, or John Farrow. And he directed the Alan Ladd one. Then we did ours, which Jack Clayton directed. Then HBO did one that starred, I'm not going to do anything, I'll get me in trouble here, but that starred Mia Sorvino. And it didn't work. And then they did the last one here, and, uh, you know, he can do anything he wants. But if he wants to do a movie like The Great Gatsby, written by Fitzgerald, why not put The Great Gatsby aside and try and do the diamond as big as the Ritz? Uh, that's if the two kids are at uh, Deerfield Academy, a prep school, and the one kid lives in Montana, so he takes his friend who's from Scarsdale uh, out for Christmas at his house, and the kid lives in the Rocky Mountains above anybody else in, like, the greatest home you've ever seen. Bigger and, you know, it's like Shangri-La. 
And the uh, kid goes out there and sees, you know, just magnificence that he never knew existed. You know, there's a couple of things. You get me thinking on this stuff. Now, there's a couple of things that always strike me when I talk to somebody. Um, but you're unbelievably uh, steeped in your, your, not only do your homework, you're a buff, you're a fan. And Quinn is a buff. Don't kid yourself. We had quizzes every day, and I'm pretty good, but uh, he knows every fucking person, you know. Um, he can give you nine John Saxon movies. Uh, you know, John Saxon almost got the lead in Jackie Brown, but he uh, didn't do it. There's two things that strike me in my career that have been done by other people that I'm enormously taken by. All my life, I've been fascinated by people, excuse the expression, that got shit done. Shit meaning a positive thing. Big stuff. Right. And uh, the first one is Laura, whose last line in her television series, um, Enlightened. I don't know if you watch it, but in the last episode, she brings down this big company that she works for down in the cellar with all the rest of the nerds on the computers. And uh, she finds out through all the computer work she does what other businesses this big Dow Chemical kind of company is into and is flabbergasted that they're doing things that are killing not only animals but people all over the world and making war stuff and everything else. So she goes, which isn't publicized, so she goes to a New York Times reporter, and she tells him what's going on there. And um, he prints the story on the front page of the New York Times. And the head of the company, uh, first of all, the day they showed, showed on, it came out on a Sunday. Monday morning, um, she's fired. The minute she walks in the building, she, he said, you're done. And the president has flown out. And he is going to be upstairs um, right now. And when you're finished with me, you go right upstairs there because he's going to tell you just exactly who you are. So Laura goes upstairs and the guy says, uh, you know, I don't know who the fuck you think you are. HBO allows you to say that. But you're not. Uh, I don't know. who You're crazy. You don't belong here. You don't belong in any office anywhere. You're destructive. You're terrorist. You're everything else. You're all the most negative things ever. And if you think you're going to bring me down or you're going to bring this company down, you're dead wrong because you're going to be sued for your ass for the rest of your life. So just who the fuck do you think you are? And she looks at him and she says, I'm just a girl who's over it. <laughs> that's that's that line. The other line that got me is they did a television movie several years ago, maybe 15 years ago, called um, RKO 267, which is about the making of Citizen King. And I think Leah Shriver played uh, Orson Welles and, uh, uh, you know, James Cromwell played William Randolph Hearst, Melanie Griffith played Marion Davies. I forget the other people in it, but very, very well done. And at the, near the end of it, William Randolph Hearst shows the movie to Marion Davies in their huge living room with the fireplace as big as anybody else's whole room. 
and it's over, and she goes berserk. And she turns on him, and there's just the two of them. She turns on him in this huge cavern of a mansion and said, you son of a bitch, you keep talking about what a great man you are. And you're so great, you can do this or that. Well, if you're that great, then you're going to stop this movie from ever coming out. And if you don't, I'm gone and everybody in your life is gone because you're not a great man. You're nothing. This ruins our lives in case you don't know it. And he starts walking down the stairs of this huge spiral staircase. And she says, you, and she goes after him with every four-letter word she can. And he suddenly stops about halfway down the staircase and looks up at her and he says, Marion, I will not allow that language in my household, so stop it. And second of all, I never said I was a great man. I quite simply said, I was a man who had a chance to be great and wasn't. And that's the kind of movies I want to make. I want to make movies about people that get that kind of stuff said. I'm an actor. The first day I wanted to act was because I was fascinated by what makes people do what they do and behave like they do, particularly in times of crisis. And for William Randolph first, I don't care what you think about the guy. To think that he didn't get shit done, excuse me. And uh, so that's kind of who I am. I run every day. I, I go to a cranial, uh, uh, you know, a cranial sacral person. I go to a chiropractor and I take recently a little Pilates class and I run every day simply because I don't want to be, I don't want to be like Woody was in Nebraska. He was fucked physically. He was fucked. But there is a line in Nebraska that's a Jersey. And it's when we go upstairs to look in the old house, you know, we start looking downstairs and, you know, what a mess and a racket was. And then we go upstairs and we look in that first room. And June says to the four of us, it's the two boys and her and me and Will, five, or no, her and me and, and Will and Oliver. And she says, this was uh, Woody's little brother's room. This is where you were named after him, David. This is where David died of tuberculosis. And Woody slept in the same bed with him and never got it. And Will Forte leans into me and he says, do you remember that, Dad? And uh, there's no line written. I asked Alexander if I could say something. He said, yeah, one thing. I said, okay. He said, I think it's better without words. I said, okay. And Will Forte says to me, do you remember that, Dad? And I say, I was there. Appropriate. I correct. Appropriate. I get in the car at the end of the movie. He comes in. I got the tap of hat on and everything. And I didn't get what we went for the whole movie. And he says, that's my other, this is my other little thing that I got to put in. He says, Dad, Dad. Dad, and I simply said there was nothing written. He says, Dad, I'm here. That's all. In other words, what I am trying to do is, and what Dernseys really are, is because I had so many years of playing roles that I didn't get anything to identify my character more than just he dies in Act Two. You know, there are things to embroider 
so you see yet another side of a character. And that, that, that's the only reason I put them in. They're always appropriate. They always make sense. And, um, you know, they're, they're throughout several movies I've done, you know, different, different times and stuff. But uh, I enjoy acting. I, uh, I go to work now. And the thing that I miss the most is, you know, we were real life lucky, Mike. When I first came to Hollywood, uh, we were very lucky because we still got to work with the legends. There are no legends anymore. We're not legends. I mean, Clint Wood gets a couple, I get a couple, Redford gets a couple, Jack, I, I don't think he goes to those kind of things, but he sure as well would get them. And they say the legendary words. So you, you can't be a legend today. The press is too invasive. It's everywhere. You know, I introduce uh, Clint and up in Sun Valley, uh, about three months ago, I said, you know, this is the only guy that really has legendary status with us. He's only a legend because he looks good on a horse, but he's also given back, which gives him legendary status to me. But I would say that um, that was such a great lesson for me. And yet the sad, I'll leave you with this because we've gone on. The saddest day I ever had when I wasn't on camera and I had to cry on, on the scene outside of that, I walked on a set of a gun smoke. Now, my first, Holly, my first movie was Wild River. My first Hollywood movie was Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte with Miss Davis and, uh, you know, Joseph Cotton, Olivia de Havilland, and so forth and so on. Legends. Miss Davis was so nice to me, as was Miss Stanwood really nice to me. And people say, oh, you don't need to call them this. They're not. Excuse me. They were missed to me. They were missed to, they were Barbara or Betty to America. Me, they were missed because they were that status. Three years later, I walk into my, I'm doing an episode where Harry Dean, Stanton, and I are brothers where we're going to kidnap Miss Kitty in Gunsmoke, an episode of Gunsmoke. And Walter Hill, imagine that, uh, walks up to me, who is the second assistant on the movie and the assistant director. You know, that's, that's crew. And the first assistant was John Milius. That's crew. And he walked up to me, Walter, and he said, we got a big surprise for you today. I said, really? He said, yeah. He already got your wardrobe on. I said, yeah. He said, well, then go over, sit in your chair, and uh, get ready to do the first scene. I said, with who? The scene with your mom in the kitchen. Okay. And as I approach my chair, sitting in the mom's chair, is Betty Davis. I got tears in my eyes so immediately and actually took the wind out of me. And I hear with a Chesterfield down to the fucking nub in her mouth, the last puff she could take on it. And what might be the matter with you, Booster? I said, Betty... It's a gun smoke. She said, who's going to pay for my cigarettes? I took an ad out in both trades six months ago saying seven-time Oscar nominee looking for work. And this was all I got. And when we went to work on these TV series, the stars of them were Barbara Stanwyck, Donna Reed, Loretta Young, Robert Taylor, um, James Whitmore, um, whoever the guys are that you want. And I had another guy, David Picker, said to me one day, 
Uh, we were driving in a car, and he said, I had been offered the chance to do a huge television series in 1975, uh, a huge one. Not a television series, a mini-series. Uh, at that time, there hadn't been a big one. Roots was done the next year. But this was going to be the first of the big ones. And we were in the car coming back from the premiere of Smile, which incidentally was in Fresno. To this day, Smile has never had a play date in a New York City theater. Never. And so that's what happened with Smile. So anyway, we're riding in the car, and Fred Spector, my agent, says to David, you know, I have a chance to put Bruce uh, as one of two guys in a huge television series where he'll make tons of money. I'd done Smile for $35,000. Marvin Gardens for twenty-five, And Gatsby for $30,000. That's how much I got done. So um, he said, Fred said, and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to take it. He said, Fred, let me tell you and Bruce something right now. As the head of a studio and as a buyer of talent, I never buy anything I get for free in my living room. Now, your question will be, since 1954, which was really the beginning of episodic television, there have been 31 people who starred in their own television series and went on to become movie stars. The definition of a movie star is someone who dominates a decade above the title. 31. And give me the first one. Name of the series was Wanted, Dead or Alive. Steve McQueen. And then you get up to, uh, there weren't many in the, there were about five in the 50s. I mean, Jim Garner. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, then in the early 60s, there was Clint. There was... Uh, I, I forget how they go and, and so forth and so on. But the, the guys on Saturday Night Live, they don't count because that's not their own series, you know. And then out of all of them, there's one woman, only one. And who's that? And this girl starred in three, at least three series of her own. And she's won two Academy Awards also. Sally Field. Anyway, I had a wonderful time with you, and thank you for allowing me this amount of time. Uh, I hope the piece works the way you want it to. Oh, I'm sure that it will. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the of the performances that have made me so happy over the years. You've been in so many things that I've just have enjoyed so much that I go back to and just really can sink my teeth into things. You know, like. The Laughing Policeman or The Burbs, just there are so many great films that you've been in, and I just want to thank you for all well, of those thank great you, times. And thank you for saying that, and I'll leave you with a line from a movie, the last one you mentioned. Where are you going, Pinocchio? Thank you, Mr. Dern. I hope thank you have you, a great Mark. rest of the day. Yeah. All, all right. right. Take care. <laughs> 